Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me this Wednesday, November 30th. A little housekeeping measure. I am going to be off tomorrow and Friday uh, taking care of some personal stuff. I will be back here on Monday, the, what would that be, the 5th of December. Yikes, almost December. So uh, I will see you after today. I will see you on Monday at 2 o'clock. That is a big thing, that me being back on the 5th, but perhaps an even bigger thing is going to be the vote in Georgia on December 6th. A lot of Democrats are not assuming that um, Raphael Warnock has it in the bag. Democrats are going down there, they're door knocking, they're canvassing, uh, that people are phone banking, and that's good. We don't want to take anything for granted. I suspect that if this race were going to determine control of the Senate, we'd have serious things to worry about, because I think a lot of Republicans who think Herschel Walker is a ridiculous nominee to the Senate would vote for him simply because they would rather have any Republican rather than a Democrat. And it has been pointed out, not every appearance, but um, Herschel Walker did go on Fox News by himself. But have you noticed almost all of his recent public appearances? He has been flanked by... Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, uh, Rick Scott has appeared with him. It's and they sit right beside him. It's really creepy. It's like they're there to handle him. One um, African-American woman um, uh, in one of um, the ads that Raphael Warnock has been running, you know, said that, you know, it's like they want somebody in the Senate that they can manipulate and they can just tell him what to do. She said, this is a guy, you know, he's been a success as a football player. How do you, are you, how are you a success? You do what people tell you to do. And she said, that's what she thinks the Republicans want in Herschel Walker. Somebody who is just going to fall in line, who is just going to be like a, a, a consistent yes for whatever they want. A puppet essentially. And I don't think that sits well with anybody. Um, History made in Congress today. Well, actually, a lot of stuff, lots of stuff happened in Congress that we want to talk about. But Hakeem Jeffries has been elected House Democratic leader, the first black lawmaker to ever lead a congressional conference here in the United States. And, of course, since we've had Nancy Pelosi leading the Democrats for 20 years, the first new leader in 20 years, By the way, um, Democrats, some of them at least, have decided that they want to bestow on Nancy Pelosi the title of Speaker Emeritus, which I think is, is, you know, that's fine. I mean, in my mind, she will always be Nancy Pelosi badass, but Speaker Emeritus, that works too. So who is this Hakeem Jeffries that is going to be leading the Democrats? Well, he's 52 years old. He is um, a New Yorker. He is the Democratic congressperson from New York. 
He uh, lives in Brooklyn. He calls himself a progressive, though some people argue that I've seen articles coming up that say, oh, you know, he might call himself a progressive, but, you know, that's not the way he votes or whatever. We're Democrats. We're a big tent. You can be a conservative Democrat. You can be a middle of the road Democrat and you can be a progressive Democrat. The most important part of that is Democrat. So he says he's a progressive. Some people say maybe not so much. And um, he was Nancy Pelosi's a chosen successor. Didn't have to do a roll call. He was unanimously acclaimed by voice vote to be the next leader of the Democrats. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, um, it could mean more than you think. I don't know if you've been reading any of this about Kevin McCarthy's um, determination early in January to be voted Speaker of the House. I mean, that's he's made that plain. That's what he wants. That's where he's going. Speaker of the House. But here's the thing. There have been a number of members of the Freedom Caucus who have said flat out they are not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. There's apparently a couple of members of the Freedom Caucus who have put themselves forward to be the next speaker. But it depends on how you count the votes. At least five Republicans have said flat out that there is no way they're going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. Matt Gates is one of these guys. No way they're going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. There's nothing Kevin McCarthy could offer them that would change their mind. It's no, 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 no. Now, remember, Kevin McCarthy, if everybody is present, he needs 218 votes. He needs a majority. So at least five Republicans have said, uh, by the way, there is a 222 um, Republican majority. At least five Republicans have said flat out they are not going to vote for him. If my math is correct, that leaves Kevin McCarthy with 217 votes which isn't enough. And by some estimates, there are potentially, potentially as many as 20 Republicans who have said, not maybe as emphatically as Matt Matt Gates, but have said that they're not sure they're going to vote for McCarthy. You know, they're still thinking about it. He, He doesn't really set them on fire. There are things about him that they don't like. If you add those wishy-washy ones, some people say that what they're doing is they're trying to position themselves so that they get a call from Kevin McCarthy saying, okay, what do you want? What's it going to take to get your vote? You know, what is it? What committee assignment do you want? What perk do you want? What bill do you want me to support? What position do you want me to take to get your vote? So we have five who claim they are hard-nosed and as many as 20 total who might not go Kevin McCarthy's way. And Kevin McCarthy is worried about this. He's very worried about this. He did an interview where he said, you know, if Republicans, here's, here's my summary of what he said, not his exact words. He basically said, if the Republicans in Congress don't get behind me, the Democrats could very well decide who is the next speaker. And what he's afraid of is that 
the moderate Republicans in Congress, if they choose somebody who is different than Kevin McCarthy and they can get all the Democrats to join them, they could potentially choose the next speaker. So the moderate Republicans, there's one group that calls itself the, I think it's the Main Street, it's either the Main Street Caucus or the Main Street Committee, and they were the ones who said publicly that they were not going to be pushed around by the Freedom Caucus, the Far Rights, the Matt Gates, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. If that moderate group of Republicans makes some kind of an arrangement, a deal, Democrats plus the moderate Republicans could very well decide who is the next speaker. And uh, again, people are saying that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is making deals left and right. A few days ago, I mentioned some of the deals that the Washington Post had confirmed that he had made, things like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, because she is a whack job, was stripped of all her committees. He's agreed to restore her to her committees. You know, he's told people that he would, you know, strip Adam Schiff of all his committees and other prominent Democrats. He'll he'll strip them of their committees. You want an investigation into Hunter, Hunter Biden? I'll do that. Kevin McCarthy, who I um, am pretty sure not only doesn't have a spine, but pretty sure he doesn't have any bones in his body at all, is selling himself, selling himself for votes. Maybe the moderate coalition, I'm sure they're also in there with him saying, well, you know, we team up with the Democrats. We could swing this our way. So here's what we want. But Kevin McCarthy, in the last uh, two major interviews he's done, has expressed a lot of concern. So clearly his behind-the-scenes negotiating is taking a toll. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. If only, if only he had that power. So um, I believe the vote is scheduled to take place January 3rd. So I'm sure Mr. McCarthy is going to spend the next month promising everybody everything they want. But when you look at somebody like Kevin McCarthy, how do you even believe his promises? This is a man who epitomizes blowing with the wind. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I know I made you that promise, but that was when the wind was coming from the east, and it's coming from the west now, so I'm going to do the exact opposite of what I told you I was going to do. How do you put your faith in a man like that? My feeling is that you vote for a man like that to be speaker only because you know you can manipulate him. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Republicans have said they want to change the House rules. Speaker has a lot of power, a lot of power over what gets done and how it gets done and what deals get made. And a lot of the Republicans are saying that what they are talking to Kevin McCarthy behind the scenes about is changing the House rules, giving the rank and file more power. People are saying, you know, we don't want another speaker like Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan 
made a lot of people angry by cutting deals with folks. They were like, we don't want another Paul Ryan. So we will only support you to be speaker if you basically agree to give away some of your power. And I have no doubt that Kevin McCarthy will agree to anything to get those votes. After he's elected speaker, then we'll see which of those promises he fulfills. We need to take a break. There's other things going on. Uh, the railroad shutdown, uh, a vote on the Defense of Marriage Act. And, uh, oh, by the way, if you live in Chicago, tomorrow, Thursday, the overnight uh, parking ban goes into effect. And it doesn't matter. It's Yes, it's a snow ban. It doesn't matter whether it snows or not. You still have to have to follow those signs as if it were snowing. All that and more right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Stephanie Miller. We are woefully under-vaccinated, particularly kids, because of the way the Republicans and Trump have politicized this. And I don't know how we get out from under it. I was telling my friend that, you know, China is almost locking down again. And she said, well, we won't do that here. I'm like, no, of course we won't. (laughs) Right? We lost the political will a long time ago. We'll just go up to a thousand deaths and more a day because, you know, this has been hopelessly politicized now. Stephanie Miller. Weekday mornings, 8 to 11 on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Congress is moving to prevent a rail strike, and uh, they have the power to sort of force a settlement on both sides. Uh, the problem has been, and I, it, it, this is just so hard to wrap your head around. There's many unions involved representing different aspects of the railroad workers. But I was uh, watching an interview with one of the union heads on CNN. And they were, you know, one of the things that they're arguing for is sick leave. What, there was one union that in the entire first year that you work for the railroad, you don't get any vacation and you don't get any sick days. <laughs> I mean, it's just the conditions that they have been operating under are really grossly unfair. Absolutely grossly unfair. And um, in Congress, in a bipartisan manner, there was a vote in the House of Representatives today to... Um, basically take action to prevent there being a rail strike, a rail strike that could happen as as quickly, potentially as the end of the week. And, you know, you might say, well, freight rail, you know, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, I take a bus to work. Well, it actually affects all of us. Some communities would almost immediately not have clean water because the chemicals that the water treatment plants use come in on freight rail. Oh, the groceries in the grocery stores, we'd see a lot fewer. You know why? Because a lot of that stuff comes in by a freight rail. It's, um, if this strike happens and goes on for any length of time, it would have really potentially brought this whole country, 
uh, to its knees. So Congress has um, voted on this. Um, And here's a statement that Bobby Rush put out a while ago, Um, actually about an hour and a half ago. I'm extremely concerned for the well-being of railroad employees, as my first job immediately after being honorably discharged from the U.S. Army was working for the Baltimore, Ohio Railroad. This is Congressman Bobby Rush. Rail workers across this country work long and unpredictable hours to make sure our economy functions. They deserve to be able to fight for their priorities, and I'm pleased that the tentative agreement secures important gains for them, including a 24% raise. And also some sick time. Yeah. Uh, he says, I urge the Senate to pass the two bills that Congress has passed to bring an end to this strike. I urge the Senate to pass both bills and not turn their back on the laborers who make this country work. Uh, Congressman Rush advocating on behalf of um, an equitable settlement for the railroad workers, so that we can all still go to the grocery store and buy our stuff. Uh, The other big thing was the Defense of Marriage Act. The Senate passed. Now, the Congress, the original bill was called the Defense of Marriage Act. Remember how when Roe v. Wade was struck down, um, we realized that everything was at risk. Uh, Gay marriage was at risk. (sighs) Clarence Thomas even said something about contraception, but, you know, he's anyway. We could we realized we couldn't rely on the court. For these rights. So there was um, the Defense of Marriage Act was written. The Senate yesterday passed the Respect for Marriage Act. Of course, they had to tweak it with their own little tweaks. So here's here's the background. I remember when Roe v. Wade was overturned, a lot of people believed that same-sex marriage, well, we believed it because Clarence Thomas said it. Um, Clarence Thomas wrote his own opinion, and he said, you know, same-sex marriage, that decision was reached on the using the same logic as Roe v. Wade. So, you know, guys, if we're kicking Roe v. Wade to the curb, we really ought to get rid of um, the case that affirmed gay marriage was legal and right. Same-sex marriage was at risk. Some people said interracial marriage could potentially be at risk. The right to contraception was at least in danger. So in Congress, um, the Defense of Marriage Act was written. It was um, passed in the House That was back in July, and there were even 47 Republicans who supported it. But the Senate said that they refused to even consider it until after the midterm elections. I'm sure that some of the uh, more far-right senators, anybody running for re-election, didn't want to be asked why he was supporting gay marriage. So the Senate refused to take a vote on it before the midterms, The midterms have come and gone, for those of you paying attention. And uh, the Senate has passed their version of this bill, uh, 61 to 36. So now, as is 
I mean, it is it is going to be the law of the land. Um, the two versions of the bill have to be brought into one, but it is essentially a done deal. But here's the thing. It's not what you might think of it is on the surface. This doesn't proclaim that gay marriage is legal, the law of the land in all 50 states. What this bill does is say that if you live in a state where gay marriage is legal and you get married to your partner and then you, for some reason, either get transferred for work or go to a state where gay marriage has, assuming that the Supreme Court does its does its worst, that, you know, there are going to be states that don't recognize gay marriage anymore. But what this law says, if you get married to your gay spouse in a state where gay marriage is legal and then you travel to a state where it is not legal, your marriage is still legal. Got that? So, again, we're uh, creating another situation where people are going to have to look at the laws of their state and decide where and how they want to live. Let's take Texas, for example. Austin, Texas, big Apple headquarters, a lot of companies there, a lot of young people, a lot of tech people considered. It was always considered the one progressive city in Texas. You know, the hope being that if, you know, it might at some point, helped influence the rest of the state to loosen up a little bit. But the opposite seems to be happening. I've been reading in the Wall Street Journal about how a lot of the younger people, the younger, more progressive people, are telling their companies they don't want to live in Austin anymore. And they're moving out. And, you know, where you send your kids to college, where you decide to take a job or accept a transfer to, You have to pay a lot more attention to the state you're going to than you did before. So what this bill that has been passed, great. It's wonderful. It's better than nothing. But it doesn't make gay marriage the law of the land. It just says if you get married to your partner in a state where it's legal, that legal marriage has to be recognized by every other state, regardless of whether or not they permit it. Welcome to the new world. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk politics when we come back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of the older people we talk to pretty regularly here on this radio show is the older person for the 15th Ward, Raymond Lopez. He was one of, if not the first, to jump into the race for mayor, declaring back in April that he was throwing his hat in the ring. Um, and he was the first to decide that he wasn't going to file those signatures after all. He joins us now to talk about that and everything else that's going on in the city of Chicago. Raymond Lopez, welcome back. 
Joan, it's great to be with you and your listeners. Hope you had a wonderful, blessed, and fattening Thanksgiving last week. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. I got I, I got on the scale a few days after Thanksgiving, and I was like, oh, that's what happens when you eat seconds and a plate piled as high as it will go. Oh, I see now. <laughs> and how was your Thanksgiving? You know, Joan, believe it or not, this was the first time in nearly a decade that I didn't have an official event to go to or to help out somewhere. And I had Thanksgiving to myself and to my husband, Hugo. Uh, and it was something something very different that I'm not used to. I think I spend more time pacing, feeling like I should be doing something. Uh, but it was wonderful to be with family, to, you know, to be together, especially coming out of COVID and everything else that's going on crazy in the world. Just to have one day of nothingness but food, uh, <laughs> really great. <laughs> Yeah. Just on food. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I I I love the fact that we have a holiday that's pretty much dedicated to eating. That's my kind of holiday. So, I have to ask you, you um you got into the mayor's race. You saw things you didn't like and felt that you needed to make a change. And then you decided not to file the I believe it was what 26,000 signatures that you had gathered. Talk to us about why you got in and why you got out. Well, as I said in April, you know, I was getting in because I believe that I was what the city needed at that moment. I believe that the city of Chicago needed a mayor who understood the neighborhoods, understood that violence is an issue, understood that we can do things better operationally speaking. Uh, but the number one thing we had to focus on was to make sure that Lori Lightfoot did not get a second term that we, we had to pick a mayor who was different and definitely not her. And as the evolution of the campaign progressed and more and more candidates uh, entered the race, it became clear that while I still believed in my vision and I still believed in the core principles and pillars that I brought to this campaign, uh, the fact of the matter is that politics and elections are all about numbers. And when you have so many candidates in a race in an open primary, which is what we basically have in the city of Chicago, is that you create a pathway uh, for the incumbent uh, when you have too many opponents giving up the opposition. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to be a part of that. I wanted to make sure that we are able to consolidate and coalesce behind a candidate in opposition to the mayor so that we can ensure that uh, we put the best foot forward and possibly even deny her access to being in the runoff. And I believe my decision accomplishes that because now we can focus on coalescing the remaining candidates and the surviving candidates uh, once ballot challenges are over and putting the best effort forward to, to deny this mayor a second term. Will you be at some point endorsing one of the candidates in the race? Yes. Uh, I, I haven't committed to whom that will be at this point. Uh, I want to, in fairness to all of my former uh, candidates, uh, give them the opportunity to sit down and discuss and see who best understands my views and the views of the thousands of people who supported me and follow me. Um, so that I can make, in my best judgment, who I think represents our interests and the interests of the city of Chicago. 
were you su- forthcoming. Any, could you give us a timeline? Do you have any, any feel for that? Um, it is my hope that as we see how things play out in terms of uh, potential challenges, um, that it should, I want to hopefully do it before the end of the year. Uh, but again, it'll depend on who's challenged, who's not challenged, who's going to be on the ballot, and so on and so forth. Because mm-hmm. I do know that there are efforts to knock some of these challengers off. Uh, and the one thing I absolutely don't want to do is bet on the wrong horse that never makes it to the starting line. A Chicago magazine, uh, Ted McClellan, recently wrote an article, and I don't know what his criteria was, but he decided that uh, that there were five contenders who he considered the top contenders. And again, I don't I didn't read the whole article, so I don't know what his criteria was. But I know one of the names on that list was Chewy Garcia, who, as you know, got into the race Pretty late in the game. I mean, some of the endorsements that he had last time he ran have already gone to another candidate. And uh, there was some concern that it would also be difficult for him to raise money. I mean, you've lived this life up close and personal, the whole idea of, you know, getting endorsements and raising money. Do you think he is a strong candidate? And if so, why? Well, I think first off, anybody that's able to stay on the ballot is a strong candidate. But I think we have to remember that a lot has happened in eight years since uh, then Commissioner Garcia was candidate for Mayor Garcia turned Congressman Garcia. You know, he doesn't have the same network of support that he did from eight years ago. And I think it's foolish to assume that all of those people that were with him then are going to be with him now. It's clear, as you see some of my colleagues and my more left colleagues, my Democratic Socialist colleagues, who may have campaigned with him in 2015 and are now in full opposition to him now. I think that what we will see is that he does have a, uh, a knowledge of what it means and what it takes to run citywide, having done it. Uh, but he didn't do it successfully. And I think one of my colleagues said if he campaigns the same way as he did in 2015, the results will be the same way. And I fully agree with that statement. Huh. Do you think any of the other candidates who are in the race, all, who survive petition challenges, will, will anybody else uh, drop out, sort of consolidating power like like you're going to do? Like you've dropped out and you're going to offer your power to uh, another candidate uh, of your choosing. Do you think that there will be anybody else who follows your example? I don't think anyone's going to follow my example willingly. Some may get knocked off or come close to it, and that might motivate them, but I don't think I see any of them in the immediate future willingly removing themselves from the political trickery that would have given Lori Lightfoot a path forward. I have spoken to a number of them, and everyone believes, as rightly a candidate should, that they are the best option. But I don't think that they are taking the political calculation into account that having all of them in the race together only serves to help the mayor in her reelection bid. Mm-hmm. What I do think, though, is that, you know, you have some candidates who are stronger or in better positions than others. I think, obviously, by virtue of incumbency, Lori Lightfoot has the advantage over everyone. But I also know that because of her tenure in office, you know, she's not given herself a lot of wiggle room for people to come up with a new uh, feeling or 
perception of her. People know who she is. They know what they feel about her, and they've already made a decision on her. So there's very little wiggle room for her uh, to change people's minds on whether or not she should be given a second term or not. And almost every poll out there shows that in a head-to-head, people want a different option other than her. She loses to nearly everyone in a one-on-one. So if she were to make it to a runoff, she would not survive. I think the question is then, well, how do the other candidates fare? And I think you have to look at starting in no particular order. You know, Dr. Willie Wilson has run numerous times citywide, statewide even. Uh, He will more than likely win every black ward because he's done it twice and walks in with approximately 12 to 14 percent of the vote um, because that is his natural base that he's created for himself in the city of Chicago. His challenge will be to move the needle up five points to try and become the second, if not the primary, the main vote getter in the in this crowded race of 11 individuals. I think Paul Vallis has name recognition, but there's a lot of animosity from his days at the Chicago uh, public schools. But he will have more money to try and help create and educate a new perception for people who are not necessarily familiar to his work from 20 plus years ago. I think you have people like Brendan Johnson who have relatively no name identification, so they are able to craft their own image, but they're also dealing with a lot of far and extreme views when it comes to safety and other other governmental issues that they'll have some, to try and work to craft before somebody else crafts it for them. Some, some people have told me privately that they think that Brandon Johnson being su- supported so strongly by the Chicago Teachers Union that the Chicago Teachers Union so real public support for him is actually a negative because people are so... Um, passionately divided over whether or not the CTU is a good thing or a bad thing. Do you agree? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be uh, a negative for him. I think in terms of Brandon Johnson's campaign, he needs as much money and political muscle as he could muster, being that he has relatively no name ID uh, within his district, let alone without it. Uh, Have never really had a competitive race since he first was elected. Uh, against Commissioner Richard Boykin. What I think people understand is, yes, that we know that for some individuals, the CTU is a lightning rod, as is the FOP and some other unions. Um, But at the end of the day, the union is comprised of thousands of teachers and members from across the city of Chicago. It has deep pockets from which it will help its mayoral candidate and their allies. And he's already looking to put together a ground game, which the CTU has cultivated, not just in this last cycle, but over the last several years. I don't necessarily think that the negatives of name recognition or association are going to handicap him at this point if he is able to get his brand and his persona out the way he wants it crafted. It will become a negative if people who have more resources than him or if the mayor herself decides to go on the attack, treating him as though he is a threat and craft a perception for him and basically demonizing teachers and their standard bearer in a way to try and create a wedge for him so that he has to respond and react to that negative messaging as opposed to creating positive spin for himself. I want to uh, go through your take on the other candidates for mayor. We need to take a real quick break. I'm talking to um, Alderman Raymond Lopez, 
who recently withdrew from the race to become Chicago's next mayor. We're talking about the other candidates still in the race, and we'll continue that conversation right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm talking to Alderman Raymond Lopez, who is going to run for re-election. He wants to continue on uh, as an alderman in the city council. He has withdrawn from the race to become the next mayor of the Chicago of Chicago. And we are talking about each of the candidates uh, still left in the race and what he sees as their strengths and weaknesses. Um, what do you think about Jamal Green? I mean, you know, I mean, we've never I don't think we've ever elected a mayor that young. Uh, he you know, uh, but he you know, he certainly has a pretty high profile. Well, never say never. I, I I I believe that when I was a candidate running for from alderman to mayor, people said I couldn't be done. You know, no one ever thought a police board president could be mayor. So you never know. You might get. Uh, it is possible to have a young mayor. You know, Jamal brings a certain uh, fiery fieriness to with him and energy. Uh, I've known Jamal for many years. Uh, in my neighborhood, when he worked for Mayor Rahm Emanuel with his uh, anti-violence initiatives to put the guns down in the city of Chicago. And I've also seen him during other events where he has actually been uh, quite vocal and responsible to Juan McDonald and, and George Floyd murders and things I don't necessarily agree with some of his tactics. But I think that, you know, he represents a connection to a much younger electorate that I think many politicians need to take care to be responsive to. You know, we cannot leave young people out alone in the political wilderness and expect them to be able to be a functional part of our democratic process. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, Jamal is making sure that they are heard and and brought into this as well. And I know I think as well, so is uh, Representative Cam Buckner appealing to a younger demographic, a less uh, engaged, often, I don't want to say ignored, but sidestepped voting block uh, in terms of their age uh, and trying to engage them in this process as well. And I think uh, Representative Buckner will have an easier time more than likely going after some of the white liberal uh, North Lakefront uh, wards and communities as well as like Wicker Park in Bucktown, as he does a lot with, you know, public transportation uh, and making uh, bicycling a, a, an option on the streets, not just for cars, but for transit, as well, uh, making bikes and other things for transit as well. Um, so I think he's got, you know, some potential there, too. Not to mention that uh, we should forget also my two colleagues who are still in this race, mm-hmm. Sophia King and Alderman Rod Sawyer. Um, both filed. Um, I know Alderman King has reached out and, you know, trying to see what's next for me. And I know Alderman Sawyer has as well. You know, they come with a very different perspective, I think, from all of these candidates in that they have been a part of the functioning working of Chicago government more than any of the candidates running, uh, except for maybe the mayor. So they, uh, or should know, 
uh, how to explain the workings of government, how to explain the workings of service and delivery therein, and be able to add a different perspective to this so that it's not just dominated by idealism, but the pragmatism that aldermen and aldermanic offices are known for. I uh, interviewed Alder Sophia King shortly after she posted her um, program of how she was going to work with uh, law enforcement and changes that she would like to see in um, the way policing is done. And, you know, ideas like let's fill the uh, gap in our staff by offering retired detectives the opportunity to come back. And uh, and I as I was reading through it, well, first of all, you know, as you well know, with a lot of your colleagues, you know, sometimes people prefer to speak in platitudes or broad brushstrokes, in part because, you know, they don't want to be say something. Yeah, that they later have to be held account for. But I was so impressed with how well thought out, well reasoned uh, her program was and the fact that it was actually very specific. I think we should do this. I think we should do this. I would like to do this. I would like to do this. And as I read through it, I was like, this makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, I, I I give credit to candidates uh, like Sophia who are willing to speak in declarative sentences. <laughs> because I, I think you have to be on down. Oh, and held um, accountable and responsible for decisions. Uh, you just dropped out for a second. Whatever you just said, could you say it again? We lost your audio for a, a minute or so. Oh, just saying that, you know, I believe in declarative sentences and that I, that allows candidates from the mayor on down to be held accountable and responsible for what they're what they're believing and putting forth out there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that it's weird that Paul Vallis is really the only white person running? And is that it, these days, is that meaningful in any way? I think it's just a reflection of times are changing. And we've seen it as, you know, there's a lot of instances of changing of the guard going on in city council. Uh, we see it in the demographic of the city of Chicago as a whole. And I think that this is just a very different era we're entering into. I think we can choose to look at it as where's the white people, or we could just choose to look at it as we are a majority minority city. So we should not be surprised that a majority of the candidates running for citywide Mm -hmm. office are in fact minority. Well, there was a time in Chicago's past where if you were the only white candidate, that would guarantee you a certain number of votes. Do you think we've moved past that? Absolutely not. I think we are (laughs) still in that time frame um, because we know that as recently as the the March primary of 2020, that if you had an Irish-sounding last name, the odds of you being elected judge in a multi-person race for Cook County was in your favor. So that those kind of uh, racial identity politics are still in play. I just don't think they are as prevalent in most communities anymore. We have seen ever since uh, the election of uh, Barack Obama as senator and subsequently as president, where you have non uh, 
similar communities supporting dissimilar candidates. Mm-hmm. So for example, you see, you know, white communities having a willingness to support black communities the same way that black communities supported white politicians. And that I think has melted away uh, a lot of the barriers in many respects, which is why you might not necessarily see that kind of division and animosity or surprise for that matter, when you don't necessarily have the standard white bearer of uh, the white political candidate being the bearer for the white people in the city of Chicago anymore, as you would in the 1960s or 70s or even 80s for that matter. Um, There are a number of names that were originally tossed out as people who might run for mayor. Do you you think Brian Hopkins regrets not getting in the race? I mean, he was somebody who was toying with it for a while. No, I don't don't necessarily think Brian uh, regrets his decision. I know he enjoys being alderman, and if I'm not mistaken, he's running unopposed. Um, so he's already a winner. So congratulations, Alderman Hopkins. <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, it, as someone who had to think about this and, and ultimately had to not only jump in, but then think about pulling back out, you know, it's an immense undertaking. And you, and there are a lot of factors that motivate different people to, to enter into this race, um, whether you have children, whether you have, you know, elderly parents to take care of what you what your uh own personal relationships with your spouse may or may not be all kinds of factors entering into running for office. And it's only magnified by 50 when you want to run for mayor. Mm-hmm. But I think people make their own decisions and sometimes it's easier uh, to make decisions that just keep you in your own neighborhood. You mentioned uh, Cam Buckner having a lot of North side support famously, one area that came out strong for Lori Lightfoot was that whole Lincoln Park area. Do you feel she's lost that support from Lincoln Park? I definitely believe and have heard from many residents in the Lincoln Park community and surrounding areas all the way through Lakeview that the support that they gave her was not going to be there this cycle. You know, we've seen conversations even going back to when the Pride Parade was happening in the summertime where even her own supporters were negatively reacting to her emails to come out and join her events, citing violence, citing the degradation of the neighborhoods. And I think there's a reckoning coming that she's not aware, not prepared to deal with in this election. And it opens up a lane for other candidates. I think uh, Alderman Tom Tunney would have been a natural choice to fill that space. Uh, but as we all know, he subsequently decided not to run. But I think you will see an effort made um, not only by uh, Representative Buckner, but also Brendan Johnson and possibly even Chewy Garcia to try and fill up some of that space. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be foolish and short-sighted if other major candidates, such as Vallis or Wilson, gave up that as a win for the other team. I mm-hmm. think that they should all be fighting for that as well. Um, because you can play for number two or you can play the 50 ward program to try and win the city as a whole. And that's what I think that they should be doing, too. We need to take a break for news. I'm speaking with Alder um, Raymond Lopez. You know, we got to figure out I'm trying to go with Alder these days because it's, you know, it's so awkward to say Alderman, Alderwoman. So I'm trying to go with Alder. Um, how do you feel about it? Is that OK or should I go traditional with Alderman? 
I am I am fine with alderman. I just try to remember to say alderwoman when it's. Yeah, that's what I'm afraid I'm going to forget. <laughs> you know, I have to try to keep things simple in my world. Um, alderman Ray Lopez represents the 15th Ward. He and I are going to continue this talk right after the news. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Alderman Ray Lopez. We have been talking about the mayor's race. I'd like to focus on the Chicago City Council now. Explain to me what happened with the meeting that was cut short for lack of a quorum where uh, certain uh, alders wanted to pass an increase in the real estate transfer tax for sales over a million dollars to create a fund of money to house people who do not have housing. Um, I know that they originally thought they had the votes but when it came time to actually have this uh, session, not enough um, city council members showed up. Explain to me what happened that day. I'm, I'm, I don't think I know as much as I should. Right. So there were a number of aldermen who requested a, a special meeting uh, to discuss the real estate transfer tax that would generate, I believe, several million dollars for homeless prevention uh, programs. And the issue was sent to rules committee uh, several months prior. Um, and this was an effort by frustrated aldermen to have a public discussion on the matter and hopefully even to try to pass it out of committee uh, and pass it by the full city council to, I believe, put it as a referendum uh, in next year's uh, election. Um, the meeting was called, and I believe barely 10 members. Uh, showed up to the 9 a.m. meeting. I, unfortunately, was not able to attend. I actually had a flat tire uh, on my way to City Hall. Uh, but in, a, in an extraordinary move by the mayor, she recessed and gave the uh, alderman in, in that called the meeting the opportunity to reconvene later in the day. And there again, quorum, which is the minimum number of members required to be present in order to enact business, failed to show up, missing the mark this time by one single alderman. Oh. 25 members showed, 25 members did not show, um, and they were not able to move forward with the item. And I think what we see is a growing frustration with this administration, and in particular with younger members of the city council who are not content just to have items sent to uh, rules committee purgatory and go about their, go about their lives, but are actually trying to enact legislation. And I give them credit for pushing the needle forward, uh, as some of us have as well, trying to force this administration to act on things as opposed to ignore them. And I think this would have been an easy win, in my opinion, 
if the mayor had just gotten out of the way and let the votes happen where they may, but she refused to uh, give an inch to individuals trying to have even the most simplest of debates on the subject and made martyrs out of the issue as opposed to just dealing with this head on one way or another. That was the of all the reporters who wrote about that. That seemed to be the takeaway that the mayor really wasn't behind it. So a lot of her supporters just decided to not be there for the vote. And and that was it was believed to be them doing what they felt she wanted them to do. Do you think, though, it's possible that she didn't want to be facing a big boost in the transfer tax as she runs for re-election? I think that is part of it. I think there are a number of calculations at play when it comes to this item. And in fact, it's been my experience with this administration and this mayor that oftentimes it has nothing to do, unfortunately, with policy or the impact of such ordinances uh, that are being voted on. It's been my experience that oftentimes a brick is put on things simply by virtue of the fact that they didn't come out of her idea workshop. That if it wasn't her little elves putting things together, that she doesn't want any movement from anyone other than herself. And we've seen that not just in this instance, but we saw it in the universal basic income pilot program that my other colleague, Alderman Gilbert Viegas, introduced. Uh, to give a minimum $500 to 5,000 families. And the mayor and her allies sent it to, again, the Rules Committee to die, only to be resurrected in the mayor's budget four months later without any consultation from my colleague uh, in an effort to say that she came up with this brilliant brainchild of an idea. And that kind of working relationship or lack thereof stemming so much progress and waste so much time in the city of Chicago, clearly at a time when our residents need a fully functioning government rowing the oars of the boat in the same direction. And too often we're fighting our captain on the direction of which way to go. What should be the priorities for the Chicago City Council in these months going forward? Well, I think, as I've said throughout my mayoral campaign, and I still believe as alderman now, we have to address safety, first and foremost. The lack of safety in the communities and the perception therein that we are the Wild West or the Midwest must be addressed because it dampers and tampers down everything that we try to do in terms of investment, in terms of lifting up neighborhoods, lifting up people. We can't do it if people do not feel safe. It has such a huge impact on our ability to attract people to the city that it's actually having a negative toll on not only our tourism numbers, but our hotel convention and other fresh dollars that come into the city of Chicago that we don't have to ask for our residents to give forward. If we don't address that and make that a priority, we're going to continue to spiral outward, uh, spiral downward while our population spirals outward. I think also what we need to focus on is that we need to look at what remaining federal dollars we have while we still have them. Clearly, with the Republicans coming in, we're not going to see more federal dollars coming our way to help out our city. What we have is what we got. And Uh that's it. And if we are not using those dollars uh, in ways that benefit the people directly, then it's going to be a lost opportunity. Taking a billion dollars or $2 billion and paying off old, old 
lines of credit at a time when we should be bolstering our economy was a mistake. We should be growing. We're putting those dollars to growing our economy, to helping people become entrepreneurs, to helping them stay open, stay afloat, hire people, and to keep putting money into the economy. And we failed to do that, both at the city of Chicago and the Board of Education, which also got federal federal uh, American Rescue Plan money. We need to ensure that those dollars are going into the hands of real-life people in the city of Chicago, because the only way that we'll be able to address the financial burdens coming our direction, which include $60 billion in pension liabilities, isn't to squeeze taxpayers even harder, but to grow the economy so that we have an expanded tax base that functions and can support everything that we want to do. And I think that is the discussion that we should be having rather than these superficial gaslighting moments where we're just virtue signaling just to get a headline while not really dealing with the issues at hand. And that goes for all parties. <laughs> well, you talked about safety being a priority. Um, I've had, particularly with the, you know, Dan Proft and his idiot magazines and newspapers, and we've had lots of discussions about safe, um, the Safety Act and different ways to curb crime and make the criminal justice system more fair. And Sort of tangentially, one of the things that keeps coming up, whether it's the person I'm talking to or the callers I get, is this idea that, you know, obviously we know that there are dangers inherent in a hot pursuit. And so whether it's on foot or by car, a lot of um, policies have been changed about that. And people seem to feel that uh, that is... That is a big problem that if, you know, if you're, you know, going to carjack somebody in Bucktown and you know you can, you know, get on the expressway right there, that you've got to, if you can make it to the expressway, you've got to pass because the pursuit isn't going to be conducted. But then there are, there seem to be, and I am not an expert, I will give you that right now, so I'm asking you to be the expert here. There seems to be technology that would fill that gap. I mean, people are saying, you know, what about drones? You know, what about cameras on entrances and exits so that, you know, cars can be identified and followed? And, you know, forgive me, but don't we have even the technology we have now, like radios? If a car, if a cop's pursuing somebody, can't they radio um, the, you know, he's heading southbound on the Kennedy, you know, keep an eye on the exits. It just seems like we are not utilizing all the technology that's out there to catch criminals while also keeping pedestrians and other drivers safe. No, I would agree that and as someone who is notorious or infamously known as being pro-law enforcement. <laughs> yes, yes, you we are. are not, we are not using all the tools in our toolbox. I will admit, I can admit to that, attest to that, and fully support that statement. But I also know we are not supporting our officers with consistent, coherent policies that allow them to go after those magnets of violence and for those individuals who could not give two craps about what happens to pedestrians or innocent bystanders simply because they know that they could terrorize the people of Chicago because even if we do catch them, no charges will be filed against them. That even with the best of technology, there are instances where our own state's attorney will say that video surveillance is not enough, which is mind-boggling to me. 
And I could speak from experience on this matter because when my home was vandalized, when my office was targeted, we had individuals who we could identify on camera, but was told that we couldn't pursue charges or make an arrest even because the prosecution would not be there because there was no eyewitness because the video surveillance was insufficient by the state's attorney's standard. Was that because it was blurry or... or Because there was no human eyewitness to the scene of what... Well, that seems... Uh, that seems like we ought to catch up to the times. I mean, um, eyewitness testimony, as I'm sure you know, is oftentimes very suspect. I mean, you get four people to watch the same incident and you'll get four different stories about what happened. But a camera would seem to me to be better than an eyewitness. I mean, a, car- a camera is pretty irrefutable because there's no interpretation. Right. I mean, to what to what's being done or who's doing it. And I think you, you're just trying to find ways to avoid having to do the inevitable, which is to prosecute people. And I think that is, even as you go back to the Safety Act, which I know uh, draws the ire of many on, for various different reasons and the support of others for various other reasons, I think that we have to look at the, the quintessential issue here, which is that it's understandable to say that we need bail reform because no person who is poor should have to sit in jail waiting for a trial because that's how it goes. I understand that, especially if it's a once-in-a-lifetime mistake. They should not be required to spend six, nine months waiting for trial. But at the same time, we, are, we also know there are people who game the system in Cook County or who are repeat offenders and don't care what the consequences are. And those are the individuals who should not be given the same compassion as you'd give yeah. those individuals who do a once-in-a-lifetime mistake. And I think if we could correct the Safety Act to make, uh, make it so that those individuals who have rap sheets and are committed to acts of violence and that lifestyle are treated differently, the Safety Act probably would get more support than just giving a carte blanche to everyone who gets ever arrested. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we must help law enforcement with the tools. We must be clear in terms of what policy, because you need to catch, you need to chase people to catch people. But we also need to show that the police understands training and that our officers are properly trained and supervised so that they are doing what they need to do. Oftentimes, the reason that we don't do foot or car chases anymore is because officers would violate the general orders, particularly when it come, came to whether or not to put on the sirens and lights. Mm-hmm. Toggling the oh. lights on and off, the sirens on and off, that is a, a, against policy and sets us up for lawsuit. And we paid millions because of it. And that's why the city has decided it's cheaper to not do it at all than to do it the right way. And I think there's ways that we can, with better supervision, address that issue. Um, I got so wrapped up. We have completely blown through the last commercial break. So, Lady B, let's let's take one now. I'll be back with Alderman Raymond Lopez right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Alderman Raymond Lopez, who is going to stay 
in his seat campaign again to be in the city council. He has withdrawn from the race for mayor. Were you surprised that Ed Burke did not file signatures that he's essentially taking himself out of the aldermanic race? Jonah was quite surprised, to be honest with you, because I know Ed was circulating uh, right up to the weekend before the final filing date. Um, I think it caught all of us by surprise, but I don't begrudge him for it. You know, over five decades of service is more than plenty to the city of Chicago. And I'm sure that uh, he'd like to spend some time with his family and with Ann uh, Burke, the former chief justice who just resigned from her post. Um, over the next year together. I was, I got to say, I was really surprised. And you could say, well, you know, he's under indictment. But let's face it, this is Chicago. You know, being um, under indictment or even, you know, being investigated has usually, in many cases, not prevented somebody from running again. As a matter of fact, Ed Burke was certainly under a cloud last time he ran for his seat and, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, it's the end of Ed Burke. You know, now, you know, the feds are coming after him. Nobody's going to vote for him. And he won. He won handily. And when people were when reporters went to the ward to talk to the voters, they were like, you know what? He's he's a good alderman. You know, he does what we want an alderman to do. And, you know, the rest of it, we're not going to worry about, which kind of seems very Chicago to me. Yeah. So I was surprised yeah, as well. It's absolutely true. And to be fair, I believe he was indicted when he ran in 2019. for. Was he actually indicted or was he just being investigated? No, I Mm -hmm. believe he was indicted um, by then uh, because he was being investigated, if I remember correctly, while Rahm was still mayor. Hmm. Um, And I think the indictment came. uh, The indictment actually is what gave life to Lori Lightfoot's campaign, actually. Because I gave her a whole new round of commercials to use with Ed Berg in the background. Mm-hmm. And, but to be yeah, fair, the yeah. Chicago voter, to be fair, the Chicago voters elected people who were comatose <laughs> too often. <laughs> uh, think back to uh, the former president of the Cook County Board, John Stroger, had a massive stroke, and yet he somehow managed to beat Forrest Claypool, <laughs> uh, only to pass away, you know, a, a week later so that Todd Stroger could take his place as a Democratic candidate for county board president. So we we understand the nature of politics and the nature of a known name. And like Stroger, Burke was a known name. But I think, you know, again, you know, it was a brand new ward with brand new constituencies. And you have to balance that again, going back to what I said earlier, politics is all about numbers. And mm-hmm. how many new people would meet him and don't necessarily know him as being that good of an alderman because they've never worked with him before versus how many were left that could respond to that kind of argument. And in the end of the day, maybe the past just wasn't there. But at any rate, he gets to go out with never being defeated as alderman in the city of Chicago for 50 plus years. Wow. Yeah. A, quite quite a legacy. However, it turns out Um What's one thing you want to accomplish? You personally want to see the city council vote on? You know, one of the things that I brought up during the mayoral campaign that I'm actually 100 percent supportive of and I'm going to be moving forward with is the Chicago Charter. The city of Chicago must have a functional living document that organizes government and, and delineates roles and responsibilities from the executive, legislative and everywhere else in between. 
you know, we can't keep doing business by status quo and tradition because that just is not functional in a 21st century Chicago. And I've already spoken with a number of my colleagues on the possibility of what we can do to move forward and what that, what the parameters of that will look like. You know, I'm very blessed, Joan, to have been a citywide candidate for as long as I was and an active one at that and getting to see so many different neighborhoods and getting to see so many different uh, lives and how people live in those communities. And the one thing that I think is nearly universal is that we need to modernize our government, our city, so that we can do things that benefit everyone. You know, neighborhoods should not determine city service, should not determine any other outcome other than the fact that you might put pineapples on your pizza as opposed to jardiniers. <laughs> Outside of that, we should be universal. And I think, you know, having seen it firsthand in a way that most aldermen, to be quite honest, never do, um, I think gives me a brand new perspective on things. And I want to make sure that that uh, newfound perspective is put to the use, not only for my residents, but for the entire city from within the, from within the city council, especially now that nearly half the members may be gone and you're going to need people with some institutional knowledge and memory yeah. to guide everyone else forward. Uh, real quick, uh, how are the dogs? Are the dogs okay? All my babies are well. Actually, one of them just turned around as soon as I said all my babies. <laughs> they are all well. We are at seven dogs. I rescued <gasps> one last year. I don't know if you know this. No, last it was six. Pick, uh, wow. I went, yeah, I went to Texas and picked up a Border Collie Labrador Retriever mix from one of my friends because she went down there with her as a puppy and just life happened. Texas being a kill state, she would have wound up in a shelter and probably euthanized. But now she is my 85-pound puppy. Uh, <laughs> one day I'll have to bring everybody to the studio so you can come see them and say hello. And I would like that. And tag you on it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, um, the best to Hugo and the puppies. And I'm glad you're going to continue on in the city council. And I hope you will continue on being a regular guest of mine here. Always. Thank you. You and your listeners have a great rest of your day. You too. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Listen to the Tom Hartman radio program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oops, sorry, Lady B. I forgot to turn my mic back on. I had a coughing fit during the break. I apologize for that. Uh, Nabila Saeed joins us, a Democratic member-elect to the Illinois House of Representatives from the 51st District. Nabila, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? I am doing great. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving celebration and didn't eat too much. <laughs> Definitely eat a decent amount. I could go for more now that I'm looking back on it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, there's probably plenty of leftovers. You can keep on going. So tell me about your election to the House of Representatives here in the state of Illinois. Of course. So um, I was recently elected to the 51st State House District, which is out in the northwest suburbs. So it covers Palatine, Inverness, 
Hawthorne Woods, Kildare Deer Park. And I was born and raised in the district. I was born and raised in Palatine. I grew up there. I attended the public schools there. Um, And when it came around to election season this time around, you know, I was working on some school board races previously, and the climate around politics has become very charged. And, you know, that's happening at the federal level, but we're seeing it seep down to the very local levels of government, like school boards. And to me, that was an indication that we need to do everything possible to run very strong campaigns to make sure that good people are getting elected to office, people who have the interests of students at heart, that have the interests of young people at heart. Um, and that was when someone encouraged me to run. Um, one of my good friends encouraged me to run, and I threw my threw my hat in the ring back in October of 2021. And now, over a year later, we're we're here on the other side, and, it, and I'm very overwhelmed with gratitude. So it's exciting to be here. Well, um, I'd like to point out a couple of things about you. The fact that you are 23 years old, and you're also an Indian, Indian Muslim American. Those are not necessarily things that we see a lot of down in Springfield. Were you worried that your youth would work against you? Uh, truthfully, I was a bit concerned in the beginning, uh, but I slowly began to realize that it is uh, the concern of sometimes consultants and strategists and other folks that <laughs> don't necessarily see someone as young as me running for office. But when you go door to door and talk to people in the community, um, I was getting so much encouragement from folks that people said would never vote for me. You know, I was blatantly told Nabila, old white, older white people will not vote for you. And to me, um, that was, you know, that was one of the things that was thrown at me to discourage me from running. But I'd go door to door and I'd talk to folks that were older, that were white, um, that lived out of here, there in the suburbs and um, out here in the suburbs. I'm in Springfield right now, so I'm talking about it far away, <laughs> which it is. Um, but people were saying that, you know, that it couldn't be done, but they would be so excited to see someone young show up at their doorstep. And I think what I began to learn is, People are very tired with politics. They're very um, exhausted with seeing the news um, and hearing about all this partisan rhetoric. But when they see someone young step up to lead, um, they feel a sense of hope. And I was very glad that we were able to convey that, that we were able to show them that, you know, leadership can look a bit younger. Uh, We just (laughs) need to elect them. And um, I think that's what ended up resonating with folks in the community. And we won with over 2,700 votes in a district that, was not meant to be won by a Democrat. What would people say? What was their initial reaction to you when you would knock on their door? And then what did they want you to know about them? Their initial reaction, um, surprise. I think there's always surprise when a candidate themselves shows up at the doors. Um, And a lot of folks had said that they've never spoken to someone who was running for office. No one's ever showed up at their doors and uh, that was the first reaction I'd get. And then some questions about, you know, who, who I am, where I am from. Um, and I think it was uh, lots of people did end up finding that they had some kind of connection to me, um, especially in the Palatine area. You know, I grew up there. I had I was homecoming queen in my <laughs> senior year of high school. And I, re- I remember I knocked on a door and someone said that their grandchild was one of the like the you know, they have young children escorting the homecoming court out onto, onto you know, the stage. And their grandchild was one of those escorts during 
my, you know, my year. <sighs> and he remembers me from there. And it was the wow. most oddest, the most small connections that they'd have to me. Uh, and it would always make me laugh because, you know, people are like, you're, you're only 23. You're, you know, at one point I was 22 while running and you're not deeply entrenched. People don't know you, but people found some kind of connection. And, you know, I had a lot of educators in the district, a lot of people that I grew up with. Um, and sometimes I had people who I went to school with and we might not have seen eye to eye when it comes to policy, but they were just so excited that someone was running that not only that did they vote for me, but they told their parents to vote. For me. So <laughs> little connections like those. And I think when they, when, you know, I, you know, I was always asking people what, what matters most to them. And I think that's what people really appreciated too. I think it's important that as candidates, as elected officials, we continue to listen even after the election's over. Cause that's, that's the job. Um, who, who is so, helping yeah. you get up to speed? Who are your mentors? So I will say um, from the get-go, uh, Senator Ram Vilivalam, uh from the Skokie area the, was very, very encouraging and helpful. And he, uh, as you know, is currently the only Indian American in the state legislature. Uh, now he's being joined by me and Kevin Olakal. Uh, but he was very excited about getting m- more representation, but also uh, rallying behind a candidate that... Uh, you know, he he told me that I need to be that I need to be putting in the work. He told me, you know, what it takes. And from the get go, he's been very, very supportive. And even now, as I'm uh, learning the ropes of how to best support uh, support and represent my district, my constituents, um, he's been incredibly helpful. You know, Representative Mark Walker from the suburbs, Senator Ann Gillespie, Representative Teresa Ma, uh, they've all been so incredibly helpful in helping me um, throughout the campaign, but also helping me now as I learn how to navigate Springfield. What's the best advice you've gotten so far? Um, the best advice uh, to, to keep an open mind and to keep learning. Um, and I like to tell people that it wasn't that long ago that I was in college. <laughs> I, remember how to, I remember how to take notes and to learn and to keep my ears open. And um, that has been, proved incredibly helpful as we've been a new member orientation this past week. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, that will continue to be helpful as, you know, as we go towards uh, session in January. Most people who run for elected office, in addition to the general good that they want to do, there's usually one or two areas of passion for them, things that they particularly want to work on. What are those for you? Um, I would say uh, there is a lot of work that can be done, and I'm, I'm exa- you know I'm in Springfield right now trying to pinpoint what exactly the work can look like. You know what exact legislation could be proposed. Uh, but my grandfather has Alzheimer's, and to me, it's a deeply personal issue. To and I know for many people, it's a deeply personal issue when they see someone um, and their mind is deteriorating and. It, you know, they're losing control over their life. And even as a loved one, you want to support them as much as you can, but you can't control anything with that mm-hmm. kind of illness. Um, so it's important for me to see and to look into what work can be done to support um, folks that are going through things like, you know, diseases like Alzheimer's and uh, senior residents in our community that are uh, 
you know, not necessarily getting the support that they should be looking into prescription costs and figuring out how we could further lower those um, to make it a bit more affordable for folks that are older in our communities. Um, and it's, it's important for me as, you know, as an Indian American woman um, and as a Muslim woman, those are taking care of um, folks that are, you know, senior residents is, I feel like uh, something that's been ingrained in me from a very young age. I lived, grew up living with my grandmother, um, and I just want to make sure that, you know, the things I propose are taking into account, uh, and especially caring for the folks that are older in our communities. You are an Indian Muslim American. You do wear a hijab, and um, it's no surprise to you that in the last year or two or three or four, it just seems that we are seeing an increase in all kinds of hate, anti-Jewish hate, anti-gay hate, anti-Muslim hate. Have you experienced that sort of thing personally? Yes. Uh, I think for many people, the Trump presidency was a turning point. Um, and, and for me, it was, a, you know, unlike some of the other folks that I'm going to be serving with, I was in high school when Trump got elected. And being a young woman that wears a hijab, visibly Muslim, uh, with a presidential candidate talking about the Muslim ban, talking very divisive rhetoric, using very divisive rhetoric and um, you know, putting our community down over and over and over again. And we know what hateful rhetoric does. It leads to violence. That is what we continue to see. That is what we've seen in Colorado Springs. That's what we've seen across the country. Um, and in high school, there were instances where I felt unsafe, where I felt like my peers were, um, you know, were mocking me, were uh, calling me things like terrorists. And although my experience generally overall was extremely positive, um, I had very amazing peers, great uh, educators. I did experience uh, bullying because of who I am and what I look like. Um, And that doesn't stop. You know, we saw with the pandemic, the rise of anti-Asian hate. And even now, like hate is becoming so very normalized. and it it has deadly consequences. So I do think, um, you know, someone was telling me that they've never seen someone like me walking uh, walking in the Capitol today. And I was like, that that sounds so interesting. But it's so important that that people like me are there. Uh, that people like me are involved in the decision making process. That people like me are legislating against hate against any community. Because I do, I do understand firsthand what it is like to experience hate because of what, who I am or what I believe in. And I believe that absolutely no one should be experiencing hate or discrimination based off who they love, uh, their background, or, you know, their religious beliefs, their cultural identity, uh, nothing. Um, so I think it's critical that we have, you know, we continue to elect more diverse voices that, that will legislate that way. More diverse voices, that's absolutely necessary. But when you say that we can try to legislate some of this stuff away, what kind of legislation? I mean, you know, hate crimes are already um, on the books, hate speech in some instances as well. I mean, how do you change people's hearts and minds? 
I that that is that is tough to do. Um, I will say that, but I do think uh, I always think back to my own district um, when I think about how we could change hearts and minds. There, you know, like I said earlier, there were a lot of people that didn't think we could do this. They thought this district would be impossible um, because because they didn't expect someone who looks like me to win in a uh, in a suburban district out in the northwest uh, suburbs of Chicago. But I do think there is so much importance to those face-to-face conversations. I know a lot of people in the community had never had, had never interacted with someone who wore a hijab on their head, never had an in-depth conversation with them. Um, and for many people, it was the first time they were meeting someone of my unique background, um, my unique identities. And I think that that is one of the ways of making sure that we, um, you know, get away from that hatred by putting more diverse voices in the spotlight, making, electing people that, um, that look like me, that are from different backgrounds, because I'm hoping that, you know, I might have changed some minds in the 51st district that had never spoken or interacted with a Muslim before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping that if we continue to do that, will be able to see see people's hearts change um, and see people be a bit more kinder to each other. But it also comes with, you know, what's, what's happening at the federal level, with what's happening nationally, and, um, you know, with what's happening on Twitter. There are so many things that make it difficult to fight back against it. But I do think there were lots of victories across the country uh, that indicate that there are many people that are sick and tired of the hateful rhetoric and are looking to move past it and are looking for elected officials that will help us move past that just simply by being elected. You make a good point. Sometimes I think it is much more difficult to demonize the other if it is somebody, you know, if it's maybe it's easier to be an anti-Semite if you've never met a Jewish person. And uh, it's, you know, it's easy to demonize a group if you haven't known people from that group and been forced to really reckon with their humanity. Yes, I completely agree. And it shouldn't be that case. You know, it really shouldn't be the case that you need to know someone or have some kind of experience with someone to to treat them kindly. But unfortunately, uh, it sometimes is. And, you know, sometimes people are afraid of what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And people will attack the Jewish community. They will attack the Muslim community. They will attack, uh, you know, minority groups because they don't, they might not be as familiar with them. Or what they're told is coming out of, you know, Trump's mouth talking about the Muslim ban. And that's all they know. But mm-hmm. there is a, there's a level of education that we could continue to do a counter the, you know, counter the rhetoric, counter the, the preconceived notions, the stereotypes. Um, and it's unfortunate that, you know, that, that needs to take place for people to treat each other with a bit more respect. But um, I think it's one of the ways that we could could fight for a better community and society. Well, I think, Nabila, you have a great, long political career ahead of you. I am so happy to talk to you. I am so happy that you are going to be part of the House of Representatives here in the state of Illinois. And I think the 51st District is lucky to have you. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. 
<coughs> excuse me, was Nabila Sayed. She is the newest member of the uh, House of Representatives here in Illinois. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Remember at the top of the show how I told you uh, Kevin McCarthy was trying to strike deal after deal after deal because the moderate Republicans in Congress want one thing and the Freedom Caucus, the far right people want another thing. And those two things are in conflict. The Washington Post has a great article that talks about this in detail. It's called Here's How Much Trouble Kevin McCarthy is in. And remember, I told you that there are a number of people who have said they are a hard no. There is literally nothing Kevin McCarthy can offer them or cajole them with or pressure them with that would get them to vote for him. Washington Post is naming those folks. Uh, Representative Andy Biggs from Arizona. A couple of weeks ago, he wrote an op-ed saying that it's time to make a change at the top of the House of Representatives. I cannot vote for the gentleman from California, Mr. McCarthy. As I mentioned before, Matt Gates is definitely one of those people who is uh, a no on McCarthy no matter what. He's been quoted as saying, I'm not voting for Kevin McCarthy. I'm not voting for him tomorrow. I'm not voting for him on the floor. He says that there's nothing Kevin McCarthy can offer him to make him change his mind. Uh, Bob Good, the congressperson, the Republican from Virginia, he is also described as a hard no. His quote, no, sir, because we can do better. We have to have a new speaker. He will be voting for an alternative candidate. And uh, lastly, the last hard no they're talking about here is Ralph Norman from South Carolina. Uh, He has said, I'm not going to support Kevin McCarthy. He told Politico he was a hard no. Now, some of the people um, who are on the fence, it is possible. Now, remember, Kevin McCarthy needs a majority of those who are voting for a candidate to vote for him. There's this procedural rule where if somebody is there in the chambers and they don't want to vote for Kevin McCarthy, but let's say, just as an example, they also don't want to vote for Matt Gates or anybody else whose name is out there. They can vote present, but that means their vote doesn't count the way it would had they voted for a person. So it's it gets really, when you get into the procedures of the votes, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see how it ends up playing out. By the way, um, the Washington Post also lists Matthew Rosendale, the Republican from Montana, as very likely a no. And then there's a whole list of the possible no's. And Kevin McCarthy does not have a lot of wiggle room here. You know, the Republicans have claimed 222 seats. In this upcoming Congress, if everybody's in that chamber and everybody votes for a candidate, Kevin McCarthy needs 218 
of those votes. And um, right now, it doesn't look like he's got it. Okay. We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more right after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. It's pro time because at Lowe's it's Provember. Over 30 days to save big. Full of more inventory, more Lowe's MVPs bonus points, and more the deals you deserve. Because it always pays to be a pro at Lowe's. Save all Provember long. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. A little earlier in this program, I was talking to Alderman Raymond Lopez about the city council meeting that couldn't reach a quorum, couldn't vote on the transfer tax increase as a way to provide housing for those without housing. Um, progressive Alderwoman Maria Haddon was involved in that Bring Chicago Home initiative. She also represents Chicago's 49th Ward and joins us now to talk about all of these things. Maria, welcome. Hi, how are you today? I am pretty good today. How are you? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yes, uh, nice, nice, quiet time with the family. So it's good. That's always good. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the Bring Chicago Home Initiative, which, um, though I was talking about it earlier, I didn't uh, give it that name, which is, of course, the name of uh, of the bill that uh, couldn't quite get a quorum of all the people in the room to vote on. Tell me what happened. Sure. So we um, we needed uh, a quorum just to call the meeting to order. What we had was a special city council meeting, and what was to, uh, if we had a quorum, all that was going to happen was public comment to satisfy a requirement for a public hearing. So this wasn't even a meeting where all the people were going to have to vote or make a decision on anything related to the real estate transfer tax. Um, so, um, but this was a, a key requirement uh, of the state in our path to um, working to get a ballot referendum for voters to decide in February. So that was the goal, to get a referendum asking the voters in Chicago to tell us whether we thought, uh, whether they thought they, we should increase this real estate transfer tax in order to create a catered source of funds for foolishness. But we were prevented from, um, from meeting this uh, requirement, and so voters aren't going to get to decide in February. What happened? People didn't show up, um, plain and simple. So we had um, noticed the meeting uh, multiple weeks in advance. There were, there's for this type of thing, uh, for the referendum, there's um, higher requirements for notices, the notices that go in the newspaper. The, and um, advocates had, had called and, and checked in with other older people to make sure be there. And um, we knew we should have enough people. Now, uh, we all know I have a hard time showing up on time for meetings. And that certainly accounted for uh, a bit of a late start. Um, we have trouble with this lately. But um, on that, what we heard from colleagues was that, um, you know, they were getting calls from the administration, maybe from, you know, some folks kind of lobbying against this as well that people were told, oh, you're going to have to vote on Monday or, you know, maybe maybe you have another commitment, you can't make it. But people were discouraged 
um, from attending. So we managed it during the meeting to uh, get a couple of brief recesses from, from the mayor who was chairing the meeting um, in order to give a few folks who were on their way time to show up. But we ended up with only 14 people um, for that time. So we also then managed to get um, a recess until 1130. So finance committee meeting was planned for 10 a.m. And we knew uh, with 35 members that uh, should have enough older people present um, to be able to then reconvene at 1130. So we have enough older people present, but many of them uh, just stayed out of council chambers to not be present for the quorum vote. So um, the mayor didn't come back for the reconvene meeting. So Alderman Riley chaired as our mayor for temp. We had 25 members present. There were several people in the building. There were several older people in the hallway, um, but they just didn't come in. They didn't want to have the public hearing. They didn't want to uh, contribute in any way to the advancement of this legislation. Um, The reporting that I've read on this seems to imply that those people didn't enter the chambers at the behest of the mayor who didn't really want to support this. Is that your sense? Um, my, my sense is the administration was definitely part of discouraging people from participating. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. The, the experience that I had as well. Why? You know, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if she ever comes on your show, but um, I, I think it's a very good question. Um, I, I think, you know, some of her folks and some of the reporting that I, that I saw from, from the media you know, she talked about it as a property tax increase, uh, not a property tax increase. Um, it's a sales tax on property. Uh, it's an existing sales tax on property that we would like to marginally increase for uh, properties over a million dollars, right? So um, this was something that she supported as a candidate for office and the mayor in 2019. Um, she worked with the Bring Chicago Home Coalition, and um, they were working together. Um, to try and get this passed in Springfield in 2019, um, because that that's a space where uh, in Springfield um, where we've got a, a little bit more leeway, a little bit more um, uh, through that legislative body, a little bit more space to really craft um, the change. But um, after that partnership fell apart, um, uh, you know, the administration and the coalition. Uh, came at odds. The mayor uh, determined she wasn't going to support it. Um, and it's been on hold ever since for three years. So now we find ourselves in, in a homelessness crisis, right, um, that, we've, that we've known was coming. And one of the big urgent pieces of um, why I think this legislation is so important, why the coalition thinks it's so important, is because we're, we're been given a cushion of federal dollars And right now, the city is putting more money than ever into homelessness prevention, into outreach, into getting people housed. Um, Just two weeks ago, we had our third rapid rehousing event here just in Rogers Park, connecting 20 people with housing, permanent supportive housing. And um, I am very proud of the work that the city, my office, and, and our partners have been doing. But this money is going to go away. And what is going to replace it? So we're going to continue to see more people experiencing homelessness, but we're not going to have the money to, to provide them with services. And that's why we need to come up with a funding solution um, before, before the money runs out. The 
speculation is um, early in her tenure, the mayor, one of the things that she floated was the idea of raising the transfer tax, not to fund housing, but for other measures. And it was um, it was met with um, a lack of support, a lack of enthusiasm. Some people are saying that, you know, after having run up against that once, now that she is so close to running for office, she just didn't want to run into that kind of back pressure again. Do you think that's what came into play here? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I try not to speculate. Um, and so I'm sure that that's plausible. But um, now wasn't the only time to do it. We've been working to try and advance this for three years. Uh, so I think the bigger question is, um, while it might be before a big election and for something that might be hooked up, pushed back to not want to do it at this moment. Um, this has been a progressive caucus issue for the last three budgets. We've pushed this with the administration. Uh, the coalition has been working on this for three years. So what we saw um, with this attempt, this was just uh, the latest and multiple attempts for us to get the administration to get on board and help solving this problem. So um, it's, I think, a fair speculation for now, but I think it's still a bigger question of why um, why wait till something is a crisis? Why not come back to this? Um, 2020 pandemic, I get it, um, right? Things have been complicated, um, but we've been working on this for multiple years. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you more about the Bring Chicago Home initiative and other things that you're working on. I'm talking with Alderwoman Maria Haddon represents the 49th Ward. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. The Hal Sparks Radio Program. They don't have to refund if the land gets taken back. So I think they are just sacrificing Russian soldiers for this Pez dispenser of Russian cash over and over and over again. They're reclaiming this land. They get paid for taking the land. They lose it. And then they get paid for taking it again. And they're not even doing exactly. the fighting themselves. It's grotesque. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am pleased to be joined by Alderwoman Maria Haddon, who is um, one of the more progressive members of City Council. Uh, Maria, before we go back to talking about um, the uh, homeless initiative, does it seem to you that the word progressive is being stretched thin these days? It seems like, um, <laughs> you know, it's if it's if it's uh, viewed as the uh, a slight positive, then man, somebody's a progressive. Doesn't matter their voting record. Doesn't matter how they feel about the issues. They're progressive. Um. You know, I'll, I'll try some, yes, and I'll put this into some context. Our, our terms and our labels are always shifting, right? They just are. They're always shifting. Um, it's one of the, it's one of the difficult things. So, um, it can become, uh, it's hard. It's hard. I've always been someone that's pretty, uh, 
uh, uh, reluctant to, to put on certain labels. Uh, but even in my short time in politics, um, uh, yeah, progressive means something a little different to everyone. Um, there's a wide range of experiences, I think very honest ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wide range of experiences and viewpoints that um, people have and who identify with that label. And then there's also just people who, who take the label and they want to use it um, to, uh, uh, <laughs> um, uh, to identify themselves because they, they think they want the support. Um, and we're seeing that, I think, this election cycle in particular. Um, we're going to see some interesting people put on this progressive label um, who certainly um, make the question um, whether uh, whether too many people have been uh, uh, kind of adopting, adopting that uh, identification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a feeling we're going to get more and more progressive candidates regardless of their stances. I do want to go back to the bring Chicago home measure. Um, whether at the behest of the mayor or not, not enough city council people were in the chamber. There was no quorum. So this isn't going to be uh, seen and voted on by the people of Chicago anytime soon. So what are the next steps? I mean, obviously, the problem of the unhoused is not going away. So where do we go from here? Right. Um, that's a great point. Um, you know, in talking to a few of the uh, a few of the the folks who were against this and 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 you know talking to folks publicly kind of after the 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 quorum uh, you know kind of failure um, the problem is we have people experiencing homelessness that we want to house and we're going to need between 150 to 200 million dollars a year to do it and so how are we going to how are we going to meet that budget. And if people don't want to do or entertain the real estate transfer tax, then we need people to come up with some other solutions. Um, so, like one, I think we're inviting people to the table. There were there were folks, um, you know, representing uh, building owners and managers and realtor groups and associations who were really working against this, right? And so I've asked them to help us figure out how to get 150 to 200 million dollars a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, hey, if we can find another way to do it, that's not just, you know, um, putting more um, more financial burden on working families, then then I'm open to ideas. So I know Dublin is regrouping. We're meeting and figuring out um, what's our next opportunity to do that. And then, of course, um, outside of City Hall, this is still something we could change in Springfield. Um, so I think a lot's gonna a lot's gonna depend on um, the municipal election turnouts in February, right? Um, have the same mayor. What's going to be the change in city council? Um, how are we going to be able to work with our state partners? Um, and you know, it's one of the reasons why we really wanted to put this on the ballot um, because we wanted to be able to have Chicago voters demonstrate their support for this. So whether we were able to advance it through the city or through the state, um, we felt like it would be beneficial for people um, to be able and decision makers to see that Chicagoans really support this. So we're not going away. We're coming back. We're going to keep working on it because the problem's not going away. No, the problem's not going away. And there seem to be, I mean, I read about different ideas being put to the test in different communities, you know, taking um, city-owned vacant land and building tiny houses and 
there seems to be a lot of energy, creative energy being applied to this problem, but there seems to be a disconnect. And I guess it's just, is it just funding? Is it just, yeah, these are all great ideas. Now where, how are you going to pay for it? Is that the, is that the problem? I feel like one of the things that I've noticed in in this last kind of two years where we've been able to use CARES funds and and now ARPA funds are some really good implementation of, of like proven methods that work. Um, So like our department of family and support services, um, they've been working to identify available apartments, um, entering into lease agreements, and um, working with our nonprofit partners to identify people who are experiencing homelessness, figuring out what their needs are, right? What kind of place are they looking for? What are the reasons behind uh, how they've become homeless, right? And they're matching people with housing and they're housing them. And then we're providing them with wraparound services, uh, caseworkers, social services, um, you know, is it that they, is it an economic, solely an economic barrier? Is it about getting them work? Is it uh, a person on, you know, um, a fixed income or SSI and they have a disruption of their benefits? Is it somebody that needs, um, you know, mental health counseling? Like, uh, is it a parent? Like, what are the issues, right? Um, and that's the kind of thing that works, right? Like housing people and providing them with the social services to help address the reason they became homeless so that they're able to stay housed. Um, so I like what we've been doing. It's been good, but there is a gap still um, in, in the funding in the capacity for us to meet the need that's being, uh, that's being demonstrated by Chicagoans. And so I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. Um, I don't think we have to try a bunch of programs. What we need is a commitment and a consistent um, revenue source for this because these funds are going to be gone. Um, we have until 2025 to spend them, but they're going to be gone by 2024, right, at the, at the rate that we're using them, if not before. And mm-hmm. then what are we going to do? What is the city's overall plan for housing and shelter? Um, and there are some other compl- like complicating factors. Um, look at what, what's been happening with taxes. Um, busing migrants to the city. That's created an increase on our shelter crisis because now we have other people experiencing homelessness that we also want to help. Um, so like this like rapid setup of, of these shelters, we even had one at Leon Beach Park uh, Fieldhouse, a place not really suitable for any kind of emergency shelter, but the city uh, did their best and made do, and, and, and actually people are being moved out of that space because it's not a good space during the cold. Um, so the city is facing a shelter crisis, and whether it's from existing residents um, experiencing you know, the loss of housing because of uh, gentrification or displacement or job loss, or whether it's new residents to the city um, who are coming here with no resources whatsoever, We've got to have a plan, and we don't we don't have one. Um, so the actions and the implementation of existing programs carried out by our family and support services department has been fantastic. Um, but the money is only part of the question. Um, it's really you know when when is the mayor and when are the rest of city council going to step up to say we want to actually uh, combat homelessness? We want to address this. Here's what our two-year plan, three-year plan, five-year plan looks like. Um, 
And that then, that plan requires a commitment of finances. And the finances of funds require a revenue source. Mm-hmm. Who would you say are your closest allies in the city council? Um, on this issue or in general? In general. Um, everybody, come on. Pick, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, but you know, when you when there's something you want to bring to the floor, the people you know you can count on to have your back. Uh, you know, we've got a, a great uh, a great group of folks um, that we work with within the Chicago Progressive Caucus. Um, so some of them who are my kind of close neighbors, right, like Alderman Vasquez um, or Alderman Matt Martin, um, you know, Alderman Jeanette Taylor, though, right, and the 20th Ward, um, uh, Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez, Alderman Carlos Rosa, um, you know, Lasvada, Sigcho Lopez, um, uh, Alderman Sophia King, right, as the chair of our caucus, has been a great partner. But other folks who maybe we don't work with so closely are also still frequently allies. So even Alderman Rod Sawyer, right, Alderman Osterman, um, to my direct neighbor. So um, there are, I have found, um, that most people in city council um, want to want to do something positive to address issues. We might have different ideas of how to do that. Um, and, of course, some of those who I work with most closely, um, I think, are in more of a similar mindset of we're trying to be legislators, right? City council is a legislative body. And for a very long time um, in this city, um, aldermen have been discouraged from being legislators. Aldermen don't come up with their own legislation. You leave everything to the mayor. But mm-hmm. when we leave everything to the mayor, right, look at where we're at. Yeah. And it's not even about just this mayor, but prior mayors. Like, the city has too many issues and too uh, much complexity um, to leave it in the hands of one executive. You need a functional legislative body. And so when you see some things like, uh, like what happened with the, the, the special meeting, it can look like it's conflict. It can look like it's spectacle. But I'll, I can tell you personally and with a lot of those close colleagues, we're not doing it for the spectacle. We're not doing it for the media. We're trying to use the legislative tools available to us um, to make lasting change for the Chicagoans that we serve. Alderwoman Haddon, it is always delightful to talk with you. And uh, I will keeping, be keeping an eye on this. But if anything happens that you think my listeners need to know about, please reach out. And um, you're welcome on this program anytime. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a pleasure to be on. Alderman, Alderwoman Maria Haddon, 49th Ward. We're going to take a break. Be back with more right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is um, this is sort of my Friday because I told you I'm I'm taking a couple of personal days Thursday and Friday, and I know that on Fridays I really enjoy talking to you, the listener, and finding out 
what um, news stories really made an impression on you. I know we don't have all that much time left, and uh, I'm kind of throwing <laughs> Lady B a curveball right now. But, Lady B, let's open up the phone lines, if you don't mind, um, and uh, and talk some politics. Uh, one of my good friends lives on the East Coast. Uh, David Lehman is a former newsman, and um, he's done just about everything there is to do in journalism. And uh, he is joining us by phone. But, you know, we do want to invite your calls to find out what made an impression on you this week. 773-763-9278. So, uh, David, how are you? Hey, very good. Very good. How are you doing today? I am. I am peachy. Um, did you have a nice okay, Thanksgiving? I, oh, had a had a great Thanksgiving. I have to tell you, though, I think uh, Chicago's moniker is the Windy City. I think I'm in the Windy City today of Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, we've got 35 to 50 mile an hour wind. So I thought, really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah. We've got the storm that. Uh, it devastated the south uh, coming up uh, the coast today. So anyway, so it's a very uh, it's a very interesting day here. But, oh, so uh, anyway, what's the temperature? Is it super cold? No, no, it's not. It's actually fairly mild uh, in the fifties uh, for us. And, oh, uh, please! So, anyway. It's a little bit windy. It's twenty-seven degrees here. I don't want to hear about your wind. <laughs> I don't want to hear about your wind anymore. You want to call me when it's windy and ten degrees? I'm your gal. But come on! Oh, it's windy. Oh, you know, good. Yeah. Fifty degrees. We'd be wearing bathing suits here if it was fifty degrees. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, anyway, what do you want to talk about today? You were going to send me a topic. Uh, uh, well, actually, I did, but I don't know. Maybe I sent it to the wrong email address. Um, one of the things that I wanted to get you to weigh in on is I've just today I've been hearing a lot and reading about about these the difficulties that Kevin McCarthy has in trying to cement his role as speaker. And even if he makes all these deals that he is supposedly, you get a car. Like I said, you get a car, you get a car. Just vote for me for speaker. I don't yeah. see how he's going to have any power. Well, I'll tell you, uh, what, what is fascinating is that the three uh, new Democratic leaders uh, are in the House uh, are seemingly getting along very, very well. And uh, they're kind of doing kumbaya, and uh, they're looking over at the Republicans and uh, sweating out the leadership battle and how that's going to work. they got all this stuff coming down on Trump the past two weeks. I mean, you know, it's really funny. Suddenly the Republican Party is looking a whole lot like the old Democratic Party. You know, the, the, old, the old joke, I... I, I, I don't belong to any organized party. I'm a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think uh, I think the, the Republicans, it's almost be careful what you wish for. Uh, and, and Hakeem Je- uh, Jeffries uh, looks like he's the kind of guy who can, you know, reach across the aisle, even though he was uh, he helped run the impeachment uh, process against the president. Uh, but he's, you know, these three people, they're, they're kind of the young Turks, if you will, with the departure coming up with Nancy Pelosi, uh, Steny Hoyer and some others. They're all in their 80s. So this is essentially a youth movement going on in the Democratic leadership. And uh, and I think that's probably healthy. Uh, you know, I think Pelosi's done a good job overall. 
But, uh, you know, it's time for a change, perhaps. And they, they seem to have some pretty good leadership there that's going to try to make things work. Uh, I think it's going to be difficult, uh, given the fact that you've got, uh, you've got so much rancor in the Republican Party. And they're not sure who they're trying to please these days. Is it going to be Donald Trump? Or do they have to please uh, maybe a, a more moderate uh, group of people in order to get things done? I just worry that it's going to end up being um, another another standoff and, and nothing gets done. Yeah, well, that's what I that's what I think we're looking at because you know we've heard from the very vocal Freedom Caucus even even before this election. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, mouthing off, and Matt Gates, and all the all the Freedom Caucus rabble rousers. But what I thought was interesting was after the midterms were over and the Republicans squeaked in a victory, suddenly. Uh, you started hearing from the moderates. I believe they call themselves the main, the, either the Main Street Caucus or the Main Street Committee. And they were like, you know what? We're not going to be pushed around by these far right people anymore. We don't think it's good for the party. We don't think it's good for our political career. And we are going to make sure Kevin McCarthy understands that he cannot just capitulate to the radical right. And I thought to myself, Wow, that's a recipe for getting nothing done. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and it's ironic that they're making those kinds of statements now. It 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 it, it belies the fact that any of these people were valedictorians if they've mm-hmm. come this far to only realize what most other people realized a year, year and a half, two years ago. Yeah, you know, with Trump, they're referring to Trump and, and the, the the devotion to Trump that uh, seems to be ebbing a bit, and and well, it should because I think he's in deep trouble. And I said before, yeah, you know, the orange man is going to be in an orange jumpsuit before too too long. Well, I don't know that I believe he'll ever be in an orange jumpsuit. Um, I've I've sort of started giving up hope in that. In that respect, I mean, I think his business is going to be ruined. I think he's going to be ruined in a lot of ways. But I don't know that any jury would would send him send him off to jail. I don't know. I'm just gotten to the point where I just don't see that as being in the cards. But I do think that, um, well, you know, it was pointed out. You know, Mitch McConnell like came out, not that I'm a fan of Mitch McConnell because I am not, but he came out and said Donald Trump should never have had that dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, you know, anti-Semite and a white supremacist. And Kevin McCarthy has talked around it, you know, well, you know, as Republicans, we shouldn't, you know, as and, you know, but he cannot he cannot find the backbone to just come out and say it was wrong, he should apologize, because I think he knows Trump pulls aside Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and says, you know, you get in there and cause trouble for this guy because he's not my friend anymore, then it's over for Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, but, you know, it, to me, it just is amazing that you, the Republican Party seems to need a, a, a group uh uh, spine uh, 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 emplacement. Uh, none mm-hmm. of these people uh, have have really stepped up. And I'll tell you what, I'm really disappointed in uh, in somebody that I had a lot of respect for. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney. You know, uh, we talked uh, once before about this. Romney, 
uh, you know, a guy who really wears his religion on his sleeve, and, and that's fine. I think that's, that's perfectly good. But here's a guy who uh, only every now and then will pop up and say something, well, I, I don't agree with Mr. Trump on this or President Trump. You know, here's a guy who's got all the, had all the credentials in the world to be able to stand up and be a leader, you know, very much like Liz Cheney, you know, or Kinziger. But, you know, he really has not, not shown me the moral, uh, uh, I guess, strength that I would have expected from him, given the fact that what Trump has done over and over and over again is immoral, if probably illegal. I mean, I certainly feel illegal. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to say this isn't a good person and we ought not to be following his leadership. To jump out of the, the hole and just, you know, say something and then pop down into the hole doesn't exactly like me. Yeah. Um, David, we have a couple of callers that want to join our conversation. Sure. Let's go to the phone lines. Uh, Matt is calling in from Berwyn, Illinois. Go ahead, Matt. You're on with me and Dave Lehman. Hi, Joan. Hi, Joan. Um, thank you for taking my call. I, I think that we need we uh, Democrats and the left need to stop using the Republican and the right terminology. And my example is is when the um, the uh, when President Obama came out with the Affordable Care Act, the Republicans refused to use that because Affordable Care that sounds reasonable. Why wouldn't everybody want that? They came up with Obamacare. So they're not the right to life party. They're the forced birth party. They're the forced religious doctrine in politics party. They're the national religion party. Yeah. Yeah. You you know, you even right. What does that mean anymore? Because uh, we've now learned, as, as Dave was saying earlier, you know, Democrats have always as we like to put it positively, we have a big tent. There's lots of different beliefs that qualify you as a rep- as a Democrat. Now we're seeing that for the first time on on the right doesn't mean what it meant before. It doesn't mean the same kind of lockstep. Uh, thank you for that call, uh, Matt. Appreciate it. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we've got uh, some more callers and some more politics to talk about with David Lehman right after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We are joined by longtime uh, newsman David Lehman, and we are taking your calls, talking about politics uh, Bob is on the phone line from Indiana. Hey, Bob, you're on with me and David Lehman. Mm, Karen McCarthy. Well, that sounds like something I have to scrape off the heel of my shoe. <laughs> um, how you doing, John? We're uh, doing great. How are things in Indiana, Bobby? Well, not as one would expect in Indiana with our lovely, uh, heavily Republican government. But um, I do have something that's been bugging me uh, now for at least a week. Uh, I heard that um, is it uh, it's in Alaska. Uh, Republican senator uh, is her name McCluskey, I think. Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski. Murkowski, Murkowski. I got back in, and uh, she is, I understand, the only Republican senator that voted to impeach Trump. 
And uh, she also said that she uh, uh, wants to work uh, on both sides of the aisle or work with the Democrats. So well, she were, question, yeah, you know, go ahead. So my question to you, who is, who is better at politics and at mathematics than I am by far, does that mean that we kind of have right now uh, instead of the 50-50 divide, may, maybe we've got 50 and a half in our favor? Hmm. I don't know about that, Bobby. I don't either, but I mean, uh, I think she might be on the fence uh, on some things, at least to work with the Democrats. Yeah, she absolutely is somebody who's been open to uh, voting for some things. Unfortunately, um, you know, she's it's I don't know, David. I mean, she's not somebody that Democrats can count on. She seems to be liberal. She seems to try to be middle of the road. But just when you think that you can count on her vote on an issue that should be a no brainer, she votes no. Um, What's your take on Lisa Murkowski? Well, you know, I, I haven't really followed her greatly, but I, I've followed her enough to know that she is one of those who's somewhat malleable, and uh, uh, you, you, you might be able to, to get her vote on some things. I mean, the fact that she uh, stood out with the impeachment vote uh, and it almost cost her her seat, uh, I, I don't know whether she learned a lesson from that, uh, meaning you better not, you know, bump the, uh, the right wing in the party. Or it's okay to do that. Now, if you're doing it on principle, people will respect that. Uh, I suspect, uh, and this is what a lot of people, I think, when we talk about the here and now and yesterday, what I tell my friends and people who you know, engage me in political conversations, that uh, you have to look down the road here. The road is not very good for, for Donald Trump and for the people who have been blindly supporting him. And I think you're going to see some more softening. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, you know, you may see some more Republicans uh, doing that, uh, you know, being a little bit more open. And if they end up with Democrats who are willing to compromise a bit, that may open the door for, for some other swing votes that we might not think of right now because we're thinking of the present and we're thinking of the past. Donald Trump's in, in for, for more tough sledding, and I think a lot of his support, not a lot, but let me caution myself, I think there will be some continued erosion in his support as the Republicans realize sticking with him is sticking with a defeat. You know, I've been, I read a, a couple of different conservative columnists people who were pretty much never Trumpers, but conservatives nonetheless. And to a person, on different occasions, they've written that what they find concerning is that those who are, quote-unquote, moving away from Donald Trump right now are not saying, look, he's, he's, a, he's a terrible person. He, you know, he is unfit to be president again. They're saying, oh, well, you know, he doesn't, he's not a winner anymore. You know, the candidates he endorsed didn't do well. And they said that seems to leave the door open. If Donald Trump does what he did last time around and prove everybody wrong and, you know, and knock everybody else out of um, 
contention. Those people, because if they're just saying, well, he doesn't seem like he could win, if he starts winning, the argument is they'll fall back in line again, as opposed to saying this guy was a terrible president, he's unfit to be president again, and sort of drawing a line in the sand. He thinks that the conservatives breaking away from Trump are wishy-washy to put to put a bottom line on it. What are your yeah. thoughts? Well, I, I think the, the fact that, that he has lost so much for the for the Republican Party is undeniable. And the party, as you saw right after the election, uh, had a caucus. And uh, apparently there was a lot of uh, torturous conversation in that caucus because they're, they're realizing, you know, no matter what we think of this guy, and no matter what we think of his popularity, uh, he has not served us well. And whether we you know, really believe in this guy, we have to be pragmatic about it. Remember, one of the definitions of politics is it's the art of the possible. And mm-hmm. the art of the possible falls, falls both ways. Uh, he, you may love his policies. You may hate Biden. But if uh, if Trump is costing you in the long run and continues to do stupid, stupid things like this thing at Mar- at Mar-a-Lago with Puentes and uh, and uh, 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 who was it? Uh, Kanye. You know, How could you forget? Oh, Kanye, Yay. Oh, <laughs> well, because because I try to forget him. Yeah. Uh, you know, when he continues to show that he learns no lessons, no lessons whatsoever. And then the party has to go around, kind of like the guy who follows the the uh, used to follow the elephants in the uh, Ringling Brothers parade to clean it all up. Uh, you get tired of doing that, especially when you know down deep this guy's morality and his his legal sense of things doesn't really compare with yours at all. But you've been holding your nose and going along with the guy. I think people are getting tired of cleaning up the mess. That he makes, and then he goes out the next day and makes another mess. And it's never positive. So you don't believe him when he said that he had no idea, A, that Nick Fuentes was coming to dinner, and B, who Nick Fuentes even was? Yeah. Well, he also said he didn't know who David Duke was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First of all, all, most ninth graders know who David Duke is. He knew him. He he embraced him at, at various times. And frankly, I know David Duke, <laughs> David Duke and Donald Trump. I used to cover David Duke when I was in Louisiana working in, in television there. And, you know, David Duke has actually found uh, a partner with uh, Donald Trump in terms of ideology. They're, they're, they're really two peas in a pod. And uh, for anyway, for, for him to, to not know, say I didn't know who these people were, first of all, the Secret Service has to know who they are because they have to approve people mm-hmm. with it. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing just, just collapses on uh, on its face uh, out of falseness and also out of humor because nobody would believe that. If they if they believe that, they don't really understand how the Secret Service operates. Mm-hmm. E- exactly. I heard one reporter on CNN say to the anchors, guys, you know, you've got to understand Donald Trump it's a it's there's one bar for whether or not he will like you and be your friend. And that's if you like him, you know, it's all about him, you know, and my God, I mean, I've some I played earlier this week, some of the clips from Nick Fuentes where he's like, oh, we got to elect Donald Trump one more time and then stop having elections. And he should just be the president for life. And I mean, you know, you know, that's that's music to Donald Trump's ears. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it's right right along the line of uh, of the, the president of China, who, who <laughs> now has that uh, apparently, and, and, and his other buddy uh, Putin. I mean, to think that the Republican Party of years ago would ever embrace uh, Putin, uh, the president of, of, of the of the country, who is a Republican. I mean, Putin would never, ever be somebody who would be considered a, a friend of the United States or a friend of the president. And yet here's Donald Trump, who was so cozy with him. And, you know, that had uh, a lot to do with not only his admiration for, for the fact that Putin can stay in office as long as he likes, but it's also, to me, there was an underlying uh, economic motive there for Trump. I don't know whether he still wanted to build the Trump Tower, the first one in, in Moscow, or whether it was oil, or who knows what. But, you know, that was a, a, a quid pro quo as, as far as I could. Oh, sure. More, and more that relationship. And there were Russian oligarchs who were like, oh, I want that condo in Trump Tower. What is it, 20 million? OK, I'll give you 50 million for it. Hello? <laughs> yeah. I want one of those deals. <laughs> Well, if I I was uh, I, I visited the Soviet Union back then, it was the Soviet Union back in 1980 before Glasnost and Perestroika. And uh, if you would look around the Soviet Union uh, it, it, uh, and, and Russia, especially now, it's just it's just an awful place. If people are downcast, they don't look at you straight in the eye, and that hasn't really changed a whole lot. I suspect I haven't been back since then. But, you know, uh, when you see what Putin has done, I mean, God, he's worse than some of the other guys except for Stalin. I mean, Brezhnev looks like, like, uh, you know, a moderate, uh, you know, uh, Democrat compared to Putin. David, thank you for spending part of your afternoon with us. Uh, Appreciate it. Sorry you didn't get my email. I think I used an old address now that I look back on it. Uh, David Lehman, thank you for being here. That is going to do it for me. As I said, I am going to take a couple of personal days. I will see you Monday at 2 o'clock. Until then, be good, stay safe, and have a great night. Good night.